Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, a happy Tuesday to you. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it be on the America One Radio app at americaoneradio.com or if you listen via podcast on whichever podcast platform you prefer to. I thank you for listening nonetheless. I'm going to start today's show with something that when I say hits close to home, I mean literally close to home. As the, uh, the, uh, the intro voice, my friend Scott tells you, I live in a cozy little condo in the heart of Old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. I've been in this building since December 2019, and even a divorce and having to sell the condo we bought didn't kick me out of the building. I just decided I wanted to stay here, sublet one five doors down, and have been here ever since. Uh, I like where I live. I like Old Fourth Ward, and I love Atlanta and the state of Georgia, of course, and these United States. Da, da, da. However, all of those, these United States, the state of Georgia, Atlanta, Old Fourth Ward, and the building I live in, come with their drawbacks. Every place does. The house you live in has its drawbacks. Even wealthy people live in homes or buildings that have their drawbacks. As I mentioned before, uh, earlier this week and throughout the incarnation of this show, I'm a residential realtor. I'm a real estate agent. I show property all the time. I spent the last couple of days actually showing distressed properties to some investors who are staying in the market looking to buy some distressed properties, fix and flip, or fix, hold, and rent out for income. It's a booming business here in Metro Atlanta to do that sort of thing, either fix and flip to sell for a profit or to fix and hold and rent out for residential income property. And by the way, I'm happy to help anyone out in that realm if need be. You can call 404-919-2725. That is the show number. It'll come right to me. It comes right to my cell phone, just as if I gave you my personal cell number. 404-919-2725. Anyway, this isn't a plea for me to get business, although I'd love to get your business. Um... This is more about how closer to being a third world country we are than the first world country we all presume ourselves to be. These distressed properties, recently lived in properties, are squalor. And they're selling for $125,000, $149,000, $179,000, and I wouldn't feel good leaving my pets in them to stay overnight. I would feel it unsafe. Think about that. For what it costs in a city like Atlanta to live in squalor, $150,000 to $225,000 in some pockets. And yet, that's a mortgage payment of $1,000 to $2,000 give or take. I'm not a mortgage lender, by the way. (laughs) And that's before you do anything to fix these homes up. This morning, I awoke to an anonymous post on my condo building's Facebook group. Most of us join the Facebook group when we move into the building because we want to know what's going on in the building. And it's not an official property management Facebook group. This is a group Maintained by the residents, we speak to each other through it often. 
I don't think we share recipes. I've not seen a recipe share, but people sometimes, hey, does anybody want this lamp before I throw it away? Or uh, I'd like to sell this couch. Little innocuous next door type stuff. But sometimes, sometimes we have to have some hard discussions with each other. Hey, who's having the construction work done? A lot of us work from home. Do you mind letting us know in advance so we can prepare, et cetera, and so on? The post I woke to this morning was troublesome, problematic. I don't know who posted it. Someone decided to make it an anonymous post, which is pretty rare because we're we're pretty good around each other. We can have these discussions and nobody gets hurt feelings or any blowback or anything like that. But someone felt it compelling enough, a taboo topic to discuss in the group, but didn't want to affix their name to it. And there's psychological conversations to have about that, I guess, away from the show. I just want to get right to the subject. So the post reads, I hate saying this because I feel bad for them, especially with it being so cold out. But the number of individuals living around our building is out of control. There is trash and miscellaneous items, like dirty clothing, all over. Saw a woman given coffee and food from the coffee shop on the main floor, opened it, and dropped the bag and coffee holder right on the ground outside. People are sleeping all in front of the building because it looks like they put a gate up to prevent people from sleeping and gathering their belongings in the alcove of the building across the street. People have been using the bathroom at the coffee shop and just sitting at the tables. A patron of the shop told me someone sitting at one of the tables started touching himself under the table and the patron quickly left. I am posting this anonymously because I know this is a sensitive topic and I feel horrible for anyone outside cold and hungry. I can't imagine what that's like but this is out of control and becoming a safety and health issue with all of the trash around and everything. I would love to gather information and resources to present to them if they are interested in finding a shelter to shelter from the cold. But our building cannot be that resource. It's hard to argue with anything that that person wrote. And let me just tell you, again, we live in Old Fourth Ward near downtown Atlanta. Most of the folks that live in this building are fairly liberal-minded folks. But there's a hint of NIMBY in all of us, right? There just is. There's a hint of NIMBY in all of us. And you can hear it in that post that that person wants to do something. And by the way, if you live in the city of Atlanta, I recommend dialing 311. 311 is sort of the non-emergency 911 of the city. And they can route you to the department that can best serve the needs that you seek to be met. Homelessness, housing the unhoused is a major problem in most major American cities. There are close to, if not more than 600,000 unhoused people in this country. 72% of them individual adults. 22% of them chronically homeless. One in five will never get back on their feet. 28% of them, members of families with kids. And a lot of them are housed, just not 
owning their own place or being able to live on their own. 6% of the unhoused population in this country, U.S. veterans. And somewhere between 20 to 25%, it's a rough guesstimate there, have serious mental health issues. And in this country, we just don't have a solution for that, or for most of this. So what I mentioned in this post to this anonymous neighbor and to all of my neighbors is that this is a macro issue with a micro repercussion for us as individuals who live in this building. Because the United States is run by a minority faction that lives in suburban and rural enclaves and or states and are indifferent to and unaffected by the plight of the unhoused because the unhoused inevitably wind up, for the most part, in larger cities, away from their sight and other senses. Cities like Atlanta are overwhelmed. And because we don't have a cogent federal and state response or program, the issue perpetuates. We're dealing in many cases with people having serious mental and or physical challenges. And because their own families aren't capable of addressing their needs substantively, and we lack the kind of mental and physical health wellness programs or universal health care that care for people regardless of income. Nearly two-thirds of our imprisoned population has a mental and or physical challenge. That's our society solution to mental health and the unhoused. It's awful. Yeah, and what's worse, no matter how many shelters, nonprofits, and communities provide, there's always going to be those among the unhoused who'd rather sleep on the streets than, quote, endure one ounce of structure and adherence to someone else's rules. See, I wrote all that to say we can implore building management to hire around-the-clock security to brush these folks away, and they'll just wind up across the street in a park, the dog park or green space, adding to the blight around us no matter. As a matter of our safety, yeah, it's necessary. I get that. It's just that I wouldn't, if I were talking to my neighbors, say, don't get your hopes up that one-stop call or outreach to an organization is going to solve this issue long-term. The next cold snap and the next wave of stoop encampments, (laughs) it's just around the corner. Even right here in Blue Dot Atlanta, our politicians have more of an appetite for a new police campus then they do an appetite for doing something tangible and substantive for the unhoused. Yeah, I mean, they're working on this shipping container community to house a whopping 40 people at a cost of $5 million. But we could drive within, I don't know, half mile, mile long radius and spot 40 unhoused people within an hour or two. What I'm saying is the city's well-intentioned little project is just a little project. It's not enough, though. And until the state and federal government step in to address this, without partisan demonizing, well, here we are. What really chaps my high, too, is that these are the very people that those on the right point to and say, we need to take care of our own first when they point towards what's happening at our southern border. They're not wrong. We should take care of our own first. But they have absolutely no appetite themselves politically to addressing homelessness. They prefer to take the partisan route. Well, that's happening in these liberal-run cities. Surely, they're not dumb enough, are they, to think that all of the unhoused people were born and raised in the major cities that they overwhelmingly wind up in, are they? No, major cities are magnets of opportunity for people who live 
in rural and suburban and exurban parts of the state and rest of the nation that surrounds those cities. See, to me, this is just another one of these major issues that we as Americans have to grapple with, but we can't because one side of the aisle doesn't want to have a dialogue substantively. They'd rather turn this into a, this is your fault, not ours scenario when it's all of our issue to deal with collectively. But again, for the party that speaks to the suburban and the exurban and the rural voter, well, this is a liberal run city problem. So we don't see it. It's not a problem to us. In other words, the homeless are just useful props. The truth is, I didn't even have this on my show agenda today. This situation just spoke to my heart, and I felt like I needed to emote. Uh, I have reached out to Kelly Glenn at Hope Atlanta, an organization that advocates and works with the homeless and the unhoused in Atlanta. Hope to have her on later this week to discuss. Okay, when we come back, there's a new clerk in town. All right, not a sheriff, but a clerk in the city of Atlanta. And they tried to slip one past us yesterday, and it got caught. More on that, Cop City Capers, when the Ron Show returns. On the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Tuesday. This is the sort of story that would normally fly under the radar and bore people, or they would just either flip through the paper or skip altogether if they saw it on their social media feed. Atlanta City Council members last night voted unanimously to appoint Corrine Lindo. She is a former City Council staff member and policy analyst. Anyway, she is now the city's new municipal clerk. Congratulations, and our condolences, Corrine. <laughs> uh, Riley Bunch of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting on this. The position has been open for months after the former municipal court, uh, clerk, Forrest Webb, retired in April of 2023. The municipal clerk responsible for keeping record of city council's uh, legislation. Um, she acts as a notary for the mayor and oversees municipal procedures outlined in the city of Atlanta charter and code of ordinances. As Riley points out in the article, the municipal clerk position at City Hall is currently in the spotlight, as the new clerk will be responsible for overseeing the verification process of more than 100,000 signatures submitted as part of a petition drive against the city's public safety training center, a.k.a. Cop City, which a lot of Atlanta Police Foundation and pro-Cop City folks are saying is approaching 75% complete already. Council member Liliana Bakhtiari, chair of the committee on council that oversees appointment, said in a statement that the clerk, quote, is instrumental in ensuring the efficient functioning record keeping and communication between the government and residents of our city. We extend our congratulations and support to Ms. Lindo as she undertakes this vital role within our government. Riley Bunch in her article points out that Lindo faces the challenging and first of its kind task of overseeing the verification of some 108,000 names submitted by organizers of the training center petition with very little details carved out in state law as to how to do it. Now, something Riley didn't dig deep into, but the last paragraph in this article, a proposal that's currently held in the committee on council would establish set procedures under the municipal clerk's office on how such petitions are accepted, reviewed, and validated. But the legislation was held Monday after city attorneys raised questions about it conflicting with state law. Eh, that's not the full story. And this is also where I point out that Riley's employer, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is a Cox Media-owned entity, and Cox is, I believe, the largest donor to the Atlanta Police Foundation? I think so. I saw this tweet come across from Melissa Pyle last night, where she tweets now, 10 minutes before a committee vote on referendum legislation, City Councilman 
Matt Westmoreland and allies of Mayor Andre Dickens snuck a substitute putting Liliana Bakhtiari's name on it without their approval or knowledge. This substitute re-adds signature matching, a non-starter for voting rights experts. Marissa Pyle continues reporting via tweet that the bill, the previous bill, endorsed by the Elias Law Group, a leading voting rights firm, has been available for two weeks for Matt Westmoreland and others to amend in secret at the last minute without the sponsor's knowledge pushing signature match when we know this will disenfranchise voters is reprehensible. She continues, Matt Westmoreland took an ordinance that we spent six months working on with legal and democracy leaders, replaced it with the mayor's memo that includes signature matching, put Liliana Bakhtiari's name on it, and sent it around four minutes before the meeting started. An absolute farce. Marissa continues, District 7 Councilman Howard Shook has just introduced this substitute in committee and admitted that none of the council members, including him, have even seen a copy yet. Amber Robinson, she continues, from the law department, signs off on the substitute that no one has seen and claims the original bill was unconstitutional. They argue they are, quote, constitutionally mandated to do discriminatory signature match, which is one of the boldest legal arguments ever, she writes. Marissa continues, an important story to be told here is how the law department has shifted from a nonpartisan entity to an arm of the mayor's office using bad faith legal arguments to delay the process and manipulate council members. It's one of the underreported scandals of this whole thing. She had an update not long after. In order to prevent the substitute from advancing, the legislation was held in committee to ensure it gets the votes. Big props to Liliana Bakhtiari, she tweets, for standing up for the process and the voters waiting to have their voices heard. Man, man. Oh. And by the way, I'm going to share this piece that Maria Supporter wrote in the Supporter Report last summer that talked about how uh, Council Member Matt Westmoreland and Liliana Bakhtiari, who, who are on opposite sides of the police training facility debate, uh, are still like good friends, siblings, but in a sometimes confrontational sort of way, but lots of hugging pictures and stuff like that. And Matt said of, of Lillian, Lily and I have a relationship that's increasingly built on candor and truth, adding that he genuinely loves her and their friendship. She keeps me true to my roots. And with stuff like that last night, I can't help but wonder what sort of candor she had for him with this new policy coming up for a vote. I mean, there was a lot to actually glean from that Supporter Report article where uh, Liliana says, I very much felt like the public was gaslit. The pandemic didn't really allow for real public engagement. The information changed almost weekly. Maria writes that both agreed the city needs a new training center, but looking back, they believe the city should have more publicly considered alternate sites and invited the community to weigh in. Maria Supporta writing, instead, the city, with the backing of the Atlanta Police Foundation, introduced legislation, quote, with the location already decided. Those are Liliana Bakhtiari's words. The prison farm site was presented as a done deal. Even Matt Westmoreland, there are countless ways the process went sideways. Still apparently seems to want to. Yeah, this is a super informative little piece that they wrote back in the summer at the Supporter Report. Kudos, Maria. Uh, the killing of Manuel Tortuguita, Tehran, climate change protester. Liliana says, we should have put everything on pause the day of the shooting. We didn't. And construction, again, just barreling right along to make things worse. There was a raid on the 
home of three protesters who were charged with money laundering and labeled domestic violent extremists. Based on information shared with the public so far, the raid was super troubling. That's Matt Westmoreland saying that, who also felt the domestic terrorism charges for some of the protesters were excessive. I empathize with the protesters. Their pain is visceral, Liliana Bakhtiari adding. When people don't have hope or faith in the democratic process, people take actions manifesting in the very thing we're trying to avoid. Here, here, ma'am. By the way, I have tried several times to get Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari on this show. There was a brief email exchange between her office and I, and then my requests kept getting unanswered. Stay unanswered. I haven't tried in several months, if I'm being honest. Maybe I should just try Matt Westmoreland and say, hey, can, can you bring your, your, your bestie Liliana Bakhtiari along? Okay, up next, Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, owner, CEO of the Lincoln Goldfinch Law Firm in Austin, Texas. Also the co-host of Law Moms Out Loud, a podcast and YouTube page devoted to helping female lawyers who want to have successful careers and home life. We're actually going to talk with her about Texas and their immigration and border antics. When the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, joining me this segment is Kate Lincoln Goldfinch, the owner CEO of Lincoln Goldfinch Law in Austin, Texas, also the co-host of Law Moms Out Loud, a podcast YouTube page as well devoted to helping female lawyers who want to have a successful career and home life. Kate, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So I I would love to sit here and talk to you about uh, balancing uh, being uh, a successful lawyer and a mom. However, (laughs) and by the way, I'm through seven and a half seasons of Suits now. And I think since we last talked, I hadn't even watched an episode. So I believe I should get some sort of legal accreditation for this. (laughs) Yeah, you and Mike can share a certificate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and it's just as valid either way. Look at you. You've watched it too. I like that. Uh, No, I wanted to talk to you because obviously uh, immigration is your specialty, and we've got so much to catch up on. Uh, We've we've seen in recent weeks some scary, like literally scary and deadly headlines just coming out of the state of Texas, the governor Mm -hmm. uh, ordering his officials to keep federal border patrol agents away from parks where we saw an immigrant and two of her children swept away and presumed dead. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. literally took a 30 mile stretch of bordering water and laced it with barbed wire buoys. Mm -hmm. I mean, am am I mistaken or was there not talk of uh, flesh eating alligators also to be played? I mean, I mean, this is so medieval, the stuff that we're seeing coming out of Texas these days. It's it's hard to, to remember what's true and what's made up or what's concocted from from pure fiction. Yeah, you know, and I the the reality is there's a lot of people who share this belief that migrants deserve to be murdered and the reason I know that is because I do a lot of, you know, social media and stuff about this and I've had so many comments on my videos of people saying, well, we should just put landmines along the border oh, and God. absolutely we should. It's really shocking. I mean, particularly if you know who these people are, if you've, if you've interacted with them, you know, I've been doing this work for 15 years and I just went down to Eagle Pass a couple of times recently. And, um, I spoke to, I don't know, about 30 or 40 people in, on the Mexico side, they were at a a shelter and they were all hoping to cross. Mm. And so I talked to them about their stories and they were all from, you know, Venezuela or Nicaragua or Honduras. And they, I mean, 
the vast majority of them had had an, a very close relative, like a child, just murdered, you know, by cartels. And, you know, they were, you know, seeking justice and then got targeted. I mean, just the most horrific stories and backgrounds that drive people out of their countries into our border. And the reality is they're so brave and resilient, you know, to to get themselves to this place um, that when you have these up close and personal interactions and conversations with these people, it's even more abhorrent, this idea that they deserve harm for what they're doing. And of course, the state of Texas, you know, Greg Abbott has said, the only reason we don't shoot them is because we'd be charged with murder. I mean, he actually said those words in a recorded interview. Um, and it's just heartbreaking. It's really, really tragic. And, and what what chills me, honestly, is that the, the, the folks you'll get these sort of comments from on, on uh, social media threads, You'll, you'll click their profile and scan and find out that they are deeply held Christian belief and, you know, evangelical and uh, don't, you know, share, don't be afraid to share this picture of white Jesus, et cetera. It, it's just the, the disconnect is sort of galling. Oh, man, it's, that's so true. And, you know, one of the things that I think... Um sometimes can get through to people, but only if they're willing to just open their minds a little bit, is um, if you if you look through some of the anti-immigrant political cartoons over the centuries in the United States, mm-hmm. there are drawings of Irish Catholic immigrants oh. as like, you know, drunken, disorderly, ape-like figures. And yep. then the Italians and the Eastern Europeans are depicted as rodents just swarming in as an infestation. There's this one that um, I posted recently. It's a, it's a drawing of how, of the Italian population. And it shows them as first they're being lazy and then they're drunk and then they're fighting and they all have knives. And then it says, this is how you round them up. And there's a, a picture of police officers beating them with batons, and it says, "This is how you dispose of them." And it's got these these migrants in a cage, and they're being drowned in the ocean. Um, wow. And it's you know, and then of course, people who are now vehemently sort of anti-immigrant and are arguing for landmines. These are people of Catholic descent, of right. Irish descent, of Jewish descent, and so sometimes you can say, "Hey." Look at how we used to talk about your people. Yep. And it's sometimes yep. I can see a light bulb in those moments, but most of the time it's really, really tough to break through just the false rhetoric that they've been fed, you know, in false and mm-hmm. Fox News or whatever. It's just it's sort of this idea that there is this invasion and there are numbers of people swarming across and they're lawbreakers and they're bringing fentanyl and just like those ideas that just get thrown out there that are false, but you can't really. Uh, sort of combat them with data or facts. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's really frustrating. Well, but you even see some of this happening within the Hispanic community in the United States. Sure. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, human beings are really tribal. Um yeah. and they are afraid of change, afraid of the unknown. Um and so that, you know, when someone that they trust, like a Greg Abbott figure or a talking head, you know, on a conservative, I don't know, talk show says millions of people and drugs and guns and violence, then they just, it's such a trigger for people to be afraid and get angry. Um, And it just doesn't matter that it's not 
based in reality. And, and the the most upsetting thing about it is that we know, of course, that politicians like Ken Paxton and Greg Abbott and, and Ron DeSantis, these people know that they're not telling the truth. Mm. They know that. But they get so much support and attention and campaign donations when they do you know, cruel things to migrants yeah. that it just doesn't matter that it's not based in reality. And I like that you that you hearken the playbook that has existed for centuries, uh, you know, more than a century in this country that has demonized uh, past immigrant waves as well, depending on what part of the uh, world that they came from. I want to talk a little bit about the razor wire scenario because the Supreme Court actually weighed in on this earlier this week. And I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of surprised that it came out the way it did in a 5-4 vote that kind of cleared the way for Border Patrol agents to go in and get this stuff out of the water. Yeah, I mean, that was, it shouldn't be a surprise, right? We have something right. called the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution, right? The, the, the fact that Border Patrol wants access to the border <laughs> should even <laughs> be a question is a little like, and it was only a 5-4 decision, you yeah, know? Yeah. But <laughs> it was a win. It was a win for the Biden administration and a confirmation that federal, you know, um, Border enforcement is a federal issue. Now, there, were, there weren't words along with the decision. It was just a one-pager, you know, based on an, an emergency injunction. And so we don't actually know how the courts are going to rule, you know, fully on these issues going up. But for now, at least, it's a it's a reminder that Border Patrol is charged with uh, enforcing patrolling the border, not the state of Texas. And, and I think that that's a good thing because... When we have the state of Texas refusing to collaborate and cooperate with the federal government, I mean, people die, you know, mm. migrants die, but it also creates more um, instability, more insecurity along the border. You just think about it. If one jurisdiction's battling with another jurisdiction over a 30-mile stretch of the river, guess what? That makes us all less secure. Right. The thing that I think frustrates me uh, from from a, a, a lens of perspective from the left side of this is that I, I feel like the Biden and Harris administration are in a damned if they do, damned if they don't scenario. Sure. If if they completely ignore the border situation or pretend that they want to be super strict, meanish, tough, that they're they're going to they're going to lose a faction of voters that I don't think that they already you know, can count on to begin with on the right. But on the left, they do catch some flack. They, they catch some flack with uh, Gaza and Israel. They catch some flack mm -hmm. pretty much on no, no matter what position they take on these key issues. But I do have to commend them for something that even I wasn't all that aware of until I did some digging like a couple of weeks ago, that there's actually a plan in place that they've been working on something since the summer of 2021 called the U.S. Strategy for Addressing the Root Causes of Migration in Central America. And this, to me, sets off the light bulb, the aha moment, the, oh my God, they're aware that we have, as a country, been involved in the affairs of Latin American countries dozens of times, more than five dozen times that I can think of in the last century and a half, and that we kind of broke a lot of this and need to take some responsibility in fixing it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you are so right. There's just, they cannot win. The And because, you know, so many people think, well, Biden's open border is sort of like people just throw that term around when in fact, the Biden administration per month deports 3.5 times the amount of migrants than the Trump administration did. It's just, it's not true. And the Biden administration has actually been remarkably tough on the border, tougher than any other president in history. Much to some um, of our chagrin. Right. 
You know, and you're so right that that this the the long term solution here. Okay, the long term solution number one is comprehensive immigration reform that accurately reflects the needs of our economy for immigrant labor. Because as long as we're living with this farce of we need immigrants here in the United States, but we don't give them a legal pathway to come, yeah. we are going to create a problem at the border. That's period the end. Mm-hmm. But also to to your comment about, you know, resolving what they call like the push factors, like what's driving people out of their country to the United States, that's a long-term strategy that must be employed if we want to, you know, impact this over time, particularly Mm -hmm. when we've got political instability and global warming and all of the things that are going to have an impact over time. And, you know, for example, the Trump administration just completely stopped funding to NGOs in Honduras or Central America that were helping with the gang violence. And Mm -hmm. it was like, it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. You know, why wouldn't we also go and try and help stabilize without meddling too much because we've, like you said, caused problems in the past. But why wouldn't we also go that far mm-hmm. to help re- help resolve the dangers that people are fleeing? So that's another, um, you know, piece to the solution puzzle is resolving the push factors, bringing our laws into alignment with the reality mm-hmm. of our needs for immigrants, and then finally creating a stable reliable, dependable system for processing asylum seekers along the border. Because anytime we have all of this like confusing, chaotic shifting of policies, it creates more problems. And frankly, that's what we've been dealing with for the last four years now. I feel like I look at the meme all the time in my head, the one where the, the, the kid's riding the bike and he's poking the stick in the in the front wheel. And, yes. and I, I feel like that's conservatives a lot uh, on so many issues, but on this one in particular, because they grouse about the cost of uh, groceries and supply chain problems, and yet we have a workforce that we have shooed away that would help us address a lot of that. But I also kind of think like, if the Biden-Harris administration or, or continuing administrations are actually able to successfully deal with the root causes of migration in Central America, we'd find ourselves in a position where economically we'd want to start ginning up migration from Central and South America to deal with the problems that not having that migration in this country would cause. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean, we've got a baby boomer population that's aging. Somebody's got to take care of them. You know, and we're doing things like in Iowa, they're passing state laws to allow children to work in the, you know, the meat processing (laughs) plants and they're identifying the companies against injuries to these children because they're so desperate for labor. And we have this beautiful solution, this like switch that all we have to do is flip. And we've got, you know, tons of qualified people who would come here and work. Um, And yet we, uh, we believe or so-called leaders who vilify these same people. Mm. Um, And it's just, it's the rhetoric that is damaging us. And I fear that the economy is just going to have to get so bad before anyone will be honest about the fact that, oh, immigrants are actually the solution to Mm -hmm. our problems. I want to ask you real quick about the uh, most recent election in Guatemala. They just elected a progressive president, and there was a former Trump cabinet member down there trying to almost incite insurrection to keep him from taking office. This is the sort of stuff that causes our migration problem in the first place. Have you kept up with Mm -hmm. that? No, I haven't been following that closely, but yeah, I mean, and in Argentina and all that, I mean, it's just sort of what is happening to our, you know, species. <laughs> it's like, what what has gotten into the water around the globe? I don't know, but um, it is, 
a really interesting time politically, globally. Um, and, you know, we're feeling it here in the United States as much as they are in other countries. And um, who knows what it's all going to mean for us in the next decade or so. Last question. I don't need to uh, know about the next decade, but how about the next 10 months? What is the political climate like in Texas? I know Ted Cruz is on the ballot. There are two good liberal candidates vying for the uh, Democratic ticket. Uh, do they have a chance? Do either one of them have a chance to unseat him? I don't know. You know, I um, I try to be an optimist. I live in Austin, you know, so I'm yeah, in a bit of a bubble. bubble. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't know. Things, I would say, I, right now, things aren't looking super great uh, nationally or locally for, for the Democrats. But I'm trying to... You know, it's going to be all we talk and hear about for so long. I feel like we've got like, you know, maybe a few more weeks of of just peace and quiet <laughs> on this front. Yeah, a little normalcy before the uh, the onslaught begins. Exactly. All right, Kate Lincoln Goldfinch with the Lincoln Goldfinch Law Firm, also the co-host of Law Moms Out Loud podcast that you can find on all the podcast platforms and the YouTube channel as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Ron Show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. After the break, is the GOP big enough for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Nikki Haley? Marge seems to think not. We'll discuss when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. Final segment for the day. Marjorie Taylor Greene has called for eradicating Nikki Haley from the Republican Party if she decides to continue her campaign after the New Hampshire primary which we'll all be waiting with bated breath to watch the results of that tonight. This is another one of those scenarios where this country is enraptured by another heavily majority white, mostly rural state having such a profound impact on our presidential politics. And say what you will, I know the New Hampshire uh, liberals, or actually the voters of all spectrums up there, are unhappy that President Joe Biden wanted to move the Democratic primary situation from where New Hampshire would be the first primary to South Carolina. And, you know, fine, fine, be mad, pound glass. I, it is what it is, you know? Why Why are we stuck? This obviously has not worked. <laughs> this does not always work. Where you have uh, states like Iowa and New Hampshire that do not reflect the diversity of this country having such a profound impact on who gets to be president of this country. Uh, anyway, Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't think that Nikki Haley is part of today's GOP anymore. And you know what? She may not be wrong. Here's what she said on MSNBC. Uh, this is a true change for the Republican Party. It says that not only do we support President Trump, we support his policies. And any Republican that isn't willing to adapt these policies, we are completely eradicating from the party. So it's up to Nikki Haley uh, what she does. The problem is... Nikki Haley's talking more substantively about policy, whether you do or don't agree with her, than Marjorie Taylor Greene or Donald Trump actually do. Here's the thing. I I see this a lot on the left. I I follow a lot of uh, influencers uh, on social media and read a lot of blogs, listen to a lot of podcasts, et cetera, and so on. I I hear a lot of glee on the left. Ooh, about the civil war happening within the GOP. And okay, while I do happen to believe that if if I were blueprinting the right future for this country, it would include at least, at minimum, four major parties in this country. And, and I firmly believe that there are at least four, maybe six factions of politics in this country. I, I don't necessarily know 
what the MAGA movement is, except for the illest of ill-informed of the conservative base, who may not necessarily even find themselves agreeing with most of the GOP's conservative platform. By and large, all Marjorie Taylor Greene could talk about was kissing Trump's ring. And you'd be a fool to think that Donald Trump's impetus for running has anything to do with anything policy-wise other than preventing him from facing the swift, sturdy arm of justice. Now, I think you're hearing this sort of rhetoric from Marjorie Taylor Greene, etc., because she realizes, uh-oh, it's down to a two-person race, which means that the GOP has to come to grips with whether or not it wants to be the party of Trump or to continue its path as the GOP we've all known it to be for the last 40-plus years. And maybe at the end of the day, it'll be neither. Maybe it'll split them up. And I actually think that could be a good thing. Because as much as we can disagree with the run-of-the-mill GOP prior to the emergence of Trump, do you not think that establishment, moderate Democrats could probably find a lot of common ground if they can eliminate that illest of ill-informed electorate that would just be off to the side in their own little MAGA bubble, forming their own little MAGA party. And listen, make no mistake, there's room for, if there's a third party that forms from the splitting of the GOP, that there's probably room for a fourth party, which would be the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And I still happen to think that that progressive wing in the establishment Democrat Party and the old school Republican Party would probably find itself in agreement on enough to keep this country moving in some sort of stable, sane, positive direction more often than not. So on the one hand, I'm over here hoping Nikki Haley does well enough tonight that she stays in the race and that the establishment Republicans who can't be swayed by Donald Trump because they're so well off that they'd rather just cut a check to her campaign to keep her in the race to take him down a peg are emboldened to do so. At the same time, those of us on the left, we have to look at these polls and go, uh, she's not wrong. She polls way better against Joe Biden than Donald Trump does. So how bad do we want this? So what do we want on the left? We want Nikki Haley to stay in the race long enough to drain the party of its resources and keep Trump in the race and mumbling incoherently as he has been. What was this about institution and death penalty? What was that about? But at the same time, we don't want Nikki Haley to be the nominee because I think she's the more dangerous candidate for Joe Biden's reelectoral prospects. But honestly, seeing Nikki Haley succeed at least enough to give those who used to be in power, the GOP, the notion that, huh, we should actually go this on our own and either try and take back our party and move them out of the party or just blow it all up and form our own. Hey, more power to you, because honestly, your party, whatever one you decide you're going to have control of, will be better for it, and your country eventually will be too. But I'd also look at you, establishment Republican, and say, now, pinky swear you're not going to get back into the game where you're doing all this misinforming on talk, radio, and Fox News, because all you're going to do is create another Trump down the road. I mean, I've, I'm asking too much. I know I am. But could, could this actually be the fever that breaks 
to where we get back to a, a point in our political discourse where we start talking substantively and factually about things that do and don't work, our feelings shouldn't matter as much as facts, data, math, science, logic. When all of our major political parties have well-intentioned, educated, accepts-the-facts leaders, you think this country's great now? Oh my God, imagine what it would be then. And sorry, not sorry, but that means there's no room for the Donald Trumps and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts and the Matt Gates and the Jim Jordans. You, you're not making the cut. Not saying that your opinions steeped in misinformation don't matter. It's just that facts should matter more. All right, that's going to do it for the Rancho. I want to thank Kate Lincoln Goldfinch for joining us last segment. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or review podcast show notes at ronshowatl.com. Take care.